Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles or just hear as the word of God is proclaimed aloud for us this morning. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side. One on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, May your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. A lot of things have changed in the last year. A lot of things that will be written in history books and studied for a very long time to come. And in retrospect, we should have known that nothing was going to be the same on January 1st of 2020 which, of course, will live in infamy as the day that Friends left Netflix. In case you missed the 90s and the aughts and the teens, let me explain for you. Friends is a television show. came out 25 years ago. It ran for 10 seasons and turned its six stars into gazillionaires. And 11 years after it went off the air, Netflix paid $30 million dollars to carry the show for one year. When that year was done, Netflix was paying a hundred million a year because Friends had become its second most watched show. A hundred million a year for a show that had not made a new episode in over a decade. But then in 2019, the company that owned the rights to Friends, Warner Media, decided there was no price high enough that they would be willing to accept it for the streaming rights to Friends. And instead, they said that on January 1st of 2020, we are taking it back for ourselves and we are moving it to our new streaming app, which was the first sign to the rest of us that we might be spending a lot more time watching stuff at home. And that everybody was going to be launching a new app to help us do so. Most estimates suggest that just the TV show Friends by itself is worth somewhere between $400 and $500 million to Warner Media for the next five years. And that does not count the estimated $1 billion, that's with a B, that the TV show brings in every year from syndication. And what's amazing about this, about these figures and about this show, what is most astonishing is that the audience for this show is not simply a bunch of middle-aged parents trying to reconnect with their 20s. 
Instead, the audience that is driving engagement with this show is Generation Z, many of whom were not even born when the show came on the air for the first time. And it doesn't matter that a lot of its jokes are frankly pretty embarrassing. And it doesn't matter that the whole show takes place in a world with no smartphones and no streaming video and no social media. People still will spend crazy amounts of time watching this show. And the secret of the most valuable TV show in the world is that there is no secret to it. It is a show about friends. It's right there in the title. And that's what all our most treasured stories are about. Harry Potter is not about magic. Friday Night Lights is not about football. The Marvel Universe is not about superpowers and it is not about whether or not the good guys win. Spoiler alert, they do. Every time. The common thread in so many of the television shows, the books, the movies that we long for is that they are stories about connection and about relationships. They are about friends. And of course, the other main thing that they are about is that they are about people who are trying to figure out who they are, trying to learn their own identity. That's obvious in a story about kids who are growing up like Harry Potter. And it's obvious in a story of superheroes who are trying to discover what they can do. But maybe it is less obvious in a show like Friends until you look at it for an extra second. There's a reason that the television show Friends began with the only married person having just gotten divorced and that none of the characters get married until the end of the seventh season. There's a reason that only one of them has a career in that first season. It's because Friends and all these stories that we love are stories about transformation and about who the characters are becoming. The six friends would not have been nearly so big a hit if they had begun the TV show where they ended up. And they definitely would not have had as much time to just sit around and do nothing at the Central Perk coffee shop. In most of our minds, that's how life works. We are working toward a point, the season finale, where we have found ourselves, where we've gotten our act together. We have figured out who we are and then we spend the rest of our lives protecting that identity, whether it is our career or our family or something else about us. And maybe, just maybe, we try to pass it down to someone else. This worldly view of friendship boxes it into a particular life stage. It assumes that these friendships only exist between people who are in the same stage of life, who can help each other figure out what is going on. And it also assumes that at some point the story is done and we are done becoming and we just are who we are. And now it's time to tell the story of the next group of 25-year-olds who are trying to figure things out. At some point, we trade friends for How I Met Your Mother. And then we trade that for a gang of content houses on TikTok. I don't know what that means, by the way. I'm just aware that it's a thing. But today's scripture gives us a different witness. One that both acknowledges our universal longing and need for friendship while also turning the worldly expectation on its head by showing us that we never reach the point where we can go it alone. 
where we are done becoming who we were meant to be, where we can just keep to ourselves and our family. Today we read about relationships that bridge generations and roles and a friendship that is not simply a luxury good or a core value for the friends. This friendship was vital to Israel's survival. Last week we told the story of how Aaron depended upon the presence of his friend and brother Moses and how when Moses went up the mountain, Aaron was left rudderless in the face of the needs of the people of Israel. Today we tell a story that happens a little bit before what we read last week. This is a flashback episode. What we just read from Exodus took place just three months after Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. It is taking place as both Moses and the people of Israel are trying to figure out who they are. Which is pretty gutsy of Moses, given that he was 80 years old when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. You would think that he might have figured himself out by that. But instead we are told that at age 80, he received a new call from God. And he confronted Pharaoh and led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And while they were on the way out, they did not have time to organize a constitution settle their system of government while they were on the run. The time is coming when they will come to Mount Sinai and God will give them the Ten Commandments and many other laws and God will say to them, this is what it means to be my people. But today's story is only three months after Egypt and they are still figuring out who they are. They have been on the move ever since they have escaped, trying to put as much distance as they can between themselves and the greatest military power on the planet namely Egypt. They march hard and they march fast and they pass through a desert. And as soon as they get through that desert, they get attacked by a new enemy. The Amalekites, we read today, raid the Israelites. And Moses sends Joshua several years, several, gener- several decades, his junior, into the battle. And then Moses himself climbs a mountain to do the same things he did when Egypt attacked. If you'll remember from your Sunday school lesson or from Charlton Heston, when Egypt attacked Israel, Moses lifted up the staff of the Lord and the Red Sea parted. And then when he raised his hand again, the sea crashed down on Pharaoh and all his army. There is no sea in this battle against the Amalekites. But once again, God saves Israel through Moses. So long as Moses keeps his hands raised, Joshua and the army of Israel are prevailing. And I'm sure you've heard what happens next. Moses got tired. Because you know, he's 80. And so his friends, Aaron and her, climb the mountain with him and hold up his hands until it is all done. And ever since I heard this story as a kid, it has seemed a little bit overly complicated to me. You don't have to think about this very long to wonder. Why would God go to such trouble? God could have saved Israel without Moses, without using a holy staff. And surely once Moses' arms got tired, God could have said, I got it from here. I don't want to be too crass about it, too dismissive, but, but really, what's the point of Aaron and her? 
Why do we need them? Why doesn't God just do the thing? I think an answer can be found in the next chapter. What happens immediately after this battle? Once the battle is done, we are told that Israel has a chance to rest and Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit. It's always a little tricky when the in-laws come to visit. It must have been especially so for Moses because Jethro was not an Israelite. He was not prone to worshiping the one true God of Israel whom Moses had set his whole life to following. We can only imagine what it had been like maybe about a year before when Moses went to his father-in-law and said, I'm going to go up against Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and I'm going to keep yelling at him until he lets go all his slaves. Jethro could not have thought this was a great plan in the interests of his grandchildren. But in Exodus 18, immediately after the battle with the Amalekites, Jethro comes to visit and he sees all that God has done. And we are told that, quote, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things that God had done. And then Jethro says to Moses, quote, now I know that Yahweh, that I am, is greater than all other gods. And in general, Jethro seems pretty impressed by his son-in-law. Good job by you, Moses. Until the next day, when Jethro follows Moses to work. And we are told that Moses sat in his office chair from morning until evening as one person after another came to ask his advice and his judgment. And at the end of the day, Jethro said to Moses, why do you sit there all alone? This is not good. You will wear yourself out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Find some capable people who can help you out that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Israel could not become the people of God so long as they relied on one man for their relationship to God. Moses couldn't carry out his purpose if he insisted on carrying it alone. God was teaching Israel to become a people by teaching them to rely on each other. And if we are a people called by God, and if we are made and called for the purposes of God, then you cannot become who you were meant to be if you insist on going it alone. Joshua relied on Moses. Moses relied on Aaron and her and on Joshua. God saved Israel by making them depend upon each other because God does not need a hero who can do it all. God can already do it all. But God needs and longs for and has made it God's purpose to create a people. God wants relationships. God wants a relationship with each of us, and God wants to restore the relationships between us. God made us for relationships because God is a relationship. We will never fully comprehend who God is, but we know that God is a relationship. Not like a relationship, not that God simply loves relationships. God is a relationship. Before anything was created, God was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
bound up in this perfect unity with nothing to do but love one another. And it was from that somehow selfless self-love that God made all of creation. And this is odd. And this is mysterious. And for 2,000 years, Christians have stumbled when trying to explain the Trinity. When all we really know is that we cannot tell the story of God without telling the story of Jesus, without telling the story of the Spirit, without telling the whole long story of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when we say that God is love in 1 John, maybe that's what we mean. That God is a relationship. Maybe that's as good a definition of love as any other. It's when I cannot tell my story without telling someone else's as well. That's the whole point of friends, isn't it? And of all those other stories that we love, when the six impossibly good-looking people sit on the couches at Central Perk, they are putting a pop-gloss portrait of a deeper spiritual truth that we were made for relationship and God never meant for any of us to tell our stories alone. God did not want Exodus to be the story of Moses. It had to become the story of Israel. Exodus starts with the radical faith of Moses, but from the very beginning, he needed his brother there alongside him. And we see a point where Moses' strength is not enough, and so Aaron and her and Joshua come to do what he cannot do alone. And I love that image of Aaron and of her holding up Moses' arms. One pastor I know says it's a good picture of what happens every time we say the Apostles' Creed. On any given Sunday, maybe you find it easy to believe every single word of what you're saying. Or maybe you find it exhausting in that particular week. But we say it together as if to say we are here to hold up one another's faith. We believe and we hold each other before God. It was about eight years ago. I was in the waiting room of the UAB ICU. I'd been there at least once a week for the last two months, waiting with Dion as she waited for Randy. Randy had had a double lung transplant that went about as badly as it could go without killing him. And as his coma entered his third month, Dion told me, Brother Michael, I can't pray anymore. I don't know what to say, and I cannot bring myself to feel it. I am so tired. And I thanked God in that moment for the story of Aaron and her. And I told Dion, it's okay. And I told her the story of Aaron and of her. And I said, we are praying for you until you can pray again. We will hold your faith up to God and we will hold that faith over Randy. And I thanked God several minutes later when Hannah and Melissa walked in from the little town where we all lived to sit some more and bring some snacks and pray some quiet prayers. And they kept waiting. And months later when the waiting was done and Randy came home, we all praised God together and we all had strength to lift our hands. 
Now, a little town of Brantley was a long way from UAB. And the doctors in Birmingham could do a lot of stuff that we couldn't do in Crenshaw County. But we could do one thing. We could wait. And the people of that town who had friendships forged over years, they knew how to live as if Dion and Randy's story was also their story. And they knew how to love. And they knew the surest way to discover your own calling and your own faith is to share in the identity and the faith of somebody else. So that neither of you can tell your stories without each other. And I wonder about your own testimony. I wonder whose story you would have to tell if you were going to tell your own story. I wonder who God has given you who can hold up your faith when your strength fails. And I wonder, because I am certain that we do not know a saving relationship with God until we know that we are saved for relationship. True and holy relationships are what come from forgiveness and love and eternity and all the things that God won for us in the empty tomb. And I am grateful that none of us here can tell the story of our faith without telling the story of this church. And I want every member in this church to find those relationships that will strengthen their relationship with God. And I expect that none of our stories is ever going to match the blown dry glamour of six friends in an outrageous New York apartment. But the story of God's people will be told in eternity. So let NBC keep their billions. A church built on holy relationships has a story that is worth infinitely more. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.